Hello, and welcome to the December 28th, 2021 episode of the Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. This is Craig W. Hurst, Emeritus Professor of Music, podcasting from my music bunker, along with my faithful canine companion, Carmel the Wonder Dog, to share with you my latest musical interests and discoveries. I claim no special inside information about the latest or greatest music, nor do I know everything there is to know about music. What I am is a lover of music. I enjoy several genres of music and I share with you what has currently caught my interest, old, new, outdated, and everything in between. Even old music is brand new if you have never heard it before. The universe of music is a vast one to enjoy. From my discussions, you might find something new to you and of interest to expand your own musical universe. I currently receive no compensation or motivation of any kind from any recording label, recording artist, or the estate of any performer or composer dead and gone to discuss their music and or recordings. Now with that out of the way, welcome to my musical universe. My guest today is Katie Callahan. Katie Callahan is a 30-something singer, songwriter, artist, and mother from Baltimore, Maryland. Her folksy music and lyrical melodies feel nostalgic, familiar, but with each listen, a layer peels back to reveal a raw emotional honesty and courageous exploration of difficult subjects. I never make a good first impression, Katie often jokes. You have to meet me twice. But if you look and listen closely, you'll see the groundwork she lays for a quiet but simmering revolution, all the complexity of an internal landscape laid bare. Katie grew up in Hawaii, the third of seven children in a military family who ended up staying in one place for the whole of her school years. The church and Christianity were woven into the fabric of every part of their lives, and she and several of her siblings served on their small community church worship team. As she began to explore her own style, bands like Jars of Clay became especially important as they were spiritual, rooted in tradition, but unafraid to question, doubt, and be honest. She continued as a worship leader through college and beyond. Following a scholarship to Goucher College just outside of Baltimore, Katie was a favorite at her campus coffee house even putting together a compilation of songs to benefit Jars of Clay's organization, Blood, Water, in 2007. And she tried to carry that momentum from school to the post-graduation world. But the recession, persistent depression, and a failing marriage kept her at odds with pursuing music, and so she all but quit. Fortunately, 
to be an artist means to be pursued by one's art at every turn. And Katie never stopped writing music, though she seldom played in public. That marriage dissolved, that mental health issues did not, and a vague glimmer of moving to Nashville to attend seminary fizzled. I was out of ideas, Katie said. Every day was just another day, and I'd lost what it felt like to dream. Katie then worked as a manager in a wine shop until she met, fell for, and married the owner. In a flash, Katie was a spouse again, a new mother, and without a career. Using motherhood as a lens through which to view herself and her place in the world, Katie began to explore different ways of pouring her artist's soul into the life she chose, writing a wine column for a local online publication, helping launch a wine import and distribution company, working on physical art projects around her spirituality and for her children, and eventually, after the birth of her second daughter, beginning the process of recording an album with friends. When it's nobody's day job, recording demos, arranging and recording is a long and tedious process, Katie says. I'd mention I was recording and people would st say, still? Katie eventually released a record with the help of friends she'd met through playing church music in her post-college life, including producer Gabriel Roman. Get It Right, 2019, was a collection of 12 songs that spanned 12 years of life, including reflections on marriages in peaks and valleys and familial relationships explored through her own lyric-driven melodies and brought to life with a simple acoustic guitar, piano, drums, and the second voice of the cello. Releasing Get It Right was a personal triumph, but its impact emphasized how insular Katie's world really was. Through 2020 and the pandemic, Katie met via Zoom with Matthew Oddmark, Dan Hazeltine of Jars of Clay, and Lewis Johnson of Lone Wave, the St. John's, and Lonus to discuss demos, co-write, and plan what would become her second record, The Water Comes Back, which was recorded in a whirlwind two weeks at Gray Matters Studio in Nashville in January of 2021. The story of The Water Comes Back began with Katie unraveling a lifelong journey with evangelical Christianity. For her, the election of 2016 opened a chasm of internal unrest around the label of evangelical, the warped beliefs about goodness and worth ascribed by purity culture and her power and role as a woman in the world. In addition to faith transition and deconstruction, the water comes back echoes themes of feminine strength and identity. Reflecting on her past project, Katie said, thinking about Get It Right, all the songs are about men in one way or another, 
former lovers, strangers, spouses, brothers, fathers. But the water comes back is about women. It's about taking up space, moving freely, singing loudly. And almost every time there's a lyric about you, it can be replaced with me. It's a record about honestly looking at identity and about sadness and pain and joy and triumph all held together. Katie Callahan is an artist and a mother. She cries at commercials, bakes her feelings, and most often would rather be by the ocean. She writes music that tells the truth as she sees it, a rich internal landscape of churning currents, seasons changing, and the tide coming in and out, quietly challenging the narratives that keep people at odds with themselves. When people hear my songs, I want them to feel seen and I want them to feel brave, she says, like they don't have to hide anything from anybody or themselves. The Water Comes Back was released in October of 2021. It is my pleasure to welcome to my musical universe, Katie Callahan. Hello, Katie. Hello, how are you? Well, I'm doing quite well, thank you. It's, it's really great to uh, talk with you. Um, let's uh, get right to talking about your new album, The Water Comes Back, which was mm -hmm. released back in October. Mm -hmm. And I have to tell you uh, what a wonderful voice you have. I've, oh, I've, li you. <laughs> I've listened to the, your recording of some of your back catalog uh, quite a bit because I like to be familiar with my interview guests. And uh, mm -hmm. excuse me, <clears throat> that's going to happen. Yeah. But uh, your voice reminds me a lot of, uh, excuse me again, mm -hmm. <coughs> I apologize to my audience, but I am getting over a cold, so that's mm -hmm. going to happen. But your voice reminds me a lot of Natalie Merchant when she was the lead yeah. singer for 10,000 Maniacs, mm -hmm. and especially the song that came out uh, was uh, <coughs> pardon me again was their song Hey Jack Kerouac mm -hmm. recorded by 10,000 Maniacs is there any connection there or am I adding 2 plus 2 and coming up with 5 <laughs> no I actually get that comparison a lot so you're definitely not alone <coughs> um, I even, even like when I was a teenager people would tell me that I sounded like Natalie Merchant but I did not have a great like I didn't have a lot of listening experience to her until people started telling me that I sounded like her. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I've subsequently listened and I definitely hear it I can hear it. I think I hear it. <laughs> well, yeah, no there's a, there's a certain uh similarity in the uh in your you know the the way you inflect certain vowels yeah. and and mm -hmm. and uh just the general tone of your voice i think i find similar it's not a copy but it's right. just where the most similarities are so the, then my next question is mm -hmm. then who were models for your vocal style and quality that's a great question um i took um i took voice lessons a few times over my my childhood um like when i was 12 and then when i was in high school again 
And they're both like moving towards a pretty classical style, um, mm -hmm. leaning towards operatic, in fact. Um, and it was never really something that I felt like I could all the way hold. I just felt like I never had enough power. I didn't have the, I mean, it could have just been honestly like a matter of experience and like not a lot of opportunities to sing that way. But um, so I, I, was, I was trained that way. I learned how that felt, but never felt like I could really do it. And then in high school, I started listening to Sarah McLaughlin mm -hmm. and it like occurred to me that one didn't have to be like, I didn't have to belt everything to be a powerful, to say something powerfully, you know, like I could have, um, some softness. Uh, and that really, I think was a significant influence, especially because right around then is really when I started writing. And so the stuff I wrote for myself kind of became more in that, in that vein. And then like, as an adult, um, voices like, uh, like Andy Baxter from Penny and Sparrow, um, and Glenn Hansard and Brandy Carlisle have been really big in sort of shaping, I feel like stylistically, almost like genre, like, um, in the way that I, in the way that I sing now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, as, as performers, we, we tend to be the sum of the parts mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. that we have listened to or experienced. Um, I mean, I, I, I can't believe that anyone is <clears throat> a complete original, although you right. become an original because you assemble those parts in a unique right. and different way. <laughs> right. But, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I really love the tune that you start the album in in a garden. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. It really has the same vibe as one of my all-time favorite gospel hymns, Down to the River to Pray. Love it. <laughs> and uh and and of course the movie Oh Brother Where Art Thou has mm -hmm. actually ruined that song for me forever. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I can't help but doing help do is is chuckle whenever I hear it because of how it's used in that movie mm -hmm. and how the characters are behaving and responding but nonetheless right. it's still one of right. my favorite old gospel <laughs> things mm -hmm. certainly the the metaphor for a garden is that it's a place of new growth and renewal it's fresh mm -hmm. full of life is this the sort of idea you were thinking about when you wrote the song yeah I mean I feel like you can't escape that when you're when you're writing a song about something like a garden. Like obviously, that's the first thing that comes to mind. And um, I wrote it. I think you're for sure spot on with that with that reference to that old hymn. Because when we were in the studio, um, Matthew Odemark, who's my producer, was like, "Do we want to go like gospel or like Appalachian?" And I was like, "Definitely, probably more in the Appalachian direction. Um, just to, like legacy wise, it felt like the right move." So um, yeah, so definitely I, that makes me really happy that it makes you think of that. Um, but I, I wrote that song after, yeah, working in my garden and um, it sort of is, it's about uh, finding kind of what's sacred in places that maybe uh, have always been that way, but we kind of forget to look there. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the, the practice of nurturing the earth, of trusting that dead earth comes back to life trusting in seasons and cycles and um, not only renewal, but how part of the cycle is, you know, is the fallow space, is the, is the space without growth and um, how all of those things are part of, of this, this larger rhythm. And really it's, that's kind of what the whole, the whole album is mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I like that. I like that statement because, you know, God doesn't necessarily reveal himself to us in a burning bush. Not right. all of us get that, <laughs> right? <clears throat> and sometimes but it's always there in front of us somewhere mm. when we mm -hmm. look for it 
And uh, so, you know, in your uh, bio, you relay your involvement with worship music and Christian Mm -hmm. music. How did uh, your involvement with those musics inform your current songwriting? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not sure how familiar you are with um, contemporary Christian music or worship music in general. uh, but a lot of it is like pretty simple stuff. And I know most songs are four chords, but worship songs are always four chords. <laughs> Very little bit. Because the goal is, right, is, is community singing. Is, is the goal is to have a bunch of people be able to sing it who aren't necessarily singers. So I get it. Um, but there is a, a simplicity. I think in a lot of the songs I write, at least on the musical side, um, uh, and what that does for, for me is because I'm a singer primarily, it gives me sort of more space, I feel like, to, to work um, a, a melody in a different way or lyrics in a different way. Um, so, it, yeah, so the sort of a simple foundation, I think, really comes from my worship background. And um, I also think that there is probably some, some influence from, like, hymns and things like that because uh, those, you know, those are, generally speaking, poems first. And what that does really just is remind you that lyrics can, are poetry. And um, that's, I mean, they, they, they mean a great deal to me, my lyrics. So um, all lyrics, in fact. <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, I think that, yeah, in those ways, I'm, I'm pretty heavily influenced by just because it's my history, you know, it's where, mm-hmm. I, where I came from. Um, and bands like specifically Jars of Clay mm-hmm. was a band I grew up with and loved and um, still, you know, still, still love today. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, you know, there's something about, okay, not, the best music is not always the most complex music. Right. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me again. Mm-hmm. <coughs> mm, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> no you take, for example, I think about like the blues. The mm-hmm. blues. The blues is only you know three chords. Right. One four five right. one. And yet, the simplicity of that musical form. And the use of the chords there really has provides a foundation for all kinds of almost, well, you could not almost an infinite way of expressing mm. yourself within that right. particular context. Right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Some, pe- some people I've, I've spoken to, um, you know, kind of found easier musical forms, easier is maybe not the right, right less complex. There's a way. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. To be somewhat mm-hmm. restricting. <laughs> But I, I see your mm. point as well, that it can be a springboard for even, you know, greater and more complex expression, mm-hmm. you know, without mm-hmm. getting the, the complexity of the music all involved. Right. I liken it to something like, um, you know, you can have a blank canvas and some people are just so overwhelmed by the idea of a blank canvas that they'll never start anything. But if you have that like sort of foundational layer of a simple chord progression or, mm-hmm. you know, like a, tr- a trusty, <laughs> a trusty four chord pattern or something like that, it sort of gives you the opportunity to then dream outside uh, mm-hmm. and above that. And actually sometimes just get started, which is mm-hmm. a lot of the time the trouble, you know? Yeah. Sometimes that's 99% of it is just getting started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh my sure, God, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, I would, I would tell you that um, I also love your song, Baptism. Yeah. Now, my primary interest in the song is the musical efficacy of how you've mm-hmm. decided to have a vehicle. I mean, what you've decided to have as a vehicle for your lyric. Mm-hmm. For example, 
I hear the choice of a fast three-quarter time mm -hmm. gives the song sort of a sea chanty sort of spirit. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah. While you're putting forth a lot of words. Mm -hmm. And then the chorus has this beautiful flowing quality to it with your mm. your your voice floating above all of the rhythmic activity in the instruments. Yeah. Yeah. I just thought just from a musical standpoint, that was a very effective musical presentation. Hmm. Uh, would you comment on, on the song Baptism? Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Um, that's a song. I, I worked on it for a really long time. It's actually one of the first things I started and, and uh, finished actually for this record. And it started as, you know, something I'd hummed to my, my newborn at the time. Um, and it, I finished it some years later. Uh, it, um, yeah, I love, I love the way that it sort of rocks back and forth on those two, those two chords, a very simple finger picking back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And what happened in the studio, so obviously the melody was there and that was, that was part of the song from the beginning as well. Once we got into the studio, um, we spent some time just sort of dreaming around those, those two constants. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, the, guy who played guitar for me his name is Lewis Johnson and he uh, he is a, um, a member of the Lone Waves and St. John's and he is Lonus as well the Nashville groups and he was just great I mean the amount of time he spent sort of coming up with the sound that it sounds like it's underwater um, it's really atmospheric and it kind of like yeah it really it feels like water it's sort of pushing and pulling and then Kevin was said is the um, the bassist and he does this like kind of rolling baseline almost the whole time that feels like an undercurrent you know so you have mm -hmm. this like steadiness in the guitar and then this sort of undercurrent rolling and then these these um these like ebbing and flowing uh all mm -hmm. these water metaphors um guitar sounds and then with the melody on top yeah so I think what I what I love about the way it came out is that it sounds like how it how it feels and mm -hmm. what the song is really talking about is like what it's what it felt like to sort of unravel um like a lifelong faith uh and history mm -hmm. in the church and things like that and and so to have it sort of you know as it goes through the bridge and sort of it gets busy and, and hectic and um and then it just kind of comes up comes up for air right at the end mm -hmm. of that last mm -hmm. little verse it just it feels like going underwater and coming back up like a baptism like a baptism yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. no i mean I, I i'm not lost on the on the on the yeah. on the metaphors i mean you know yeah. the association with water and mm. and uh, being reborn of water yeah <laughs> and so on and those other That's kinds good. of metaphors that you uh, were talking about certainly very mm -hmm. appropriate for that song yeah. yeah well very good thanks, thanks. uh when you uh went into the studio Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm aware that a lot of times there's a lot of work that goes on during the process of recording mm -hmm. that maybe changes things a bit. So right. did any of the songs turn out differently after being in the studio than you had conceived them going in and which mm -hmm. ones mm -hmm. and how so? Yeah. All right. So I can think of, there's probably like maybe three, maybe four. I'd say there are four songs that came out differently than I conceived in them. Um, in part, In a Garden is one of them. And that's simply because I, I was like, I have this melody, I, I know what it is. And I felt like I, 
I could see what direction it might go in, but I didn't know how we were going to get there. And so building that song out was actually a lot of fun because um, it was basically the percussionist drummer um, uh, in the in the in the basement. The studio was two floors, and on the bottom floor were all the instruments. And um, he just kind of went down and started hitting anything that made a sound. So like there mm-hmm. were trash cans in there, and there were mm-hmm. you know like sides of things and and whatever. Uh, he felt compelled to smack. Um, <laughs> it became part of that song, which was great. Which I love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what's next, I guess? Oh, you know, the song Notre Dame um, started differently as well. Uh, that that song was meant to be sort of a simple and sweet little little ditty about, you know, like a, about a small snapshot of an experience. And it ended up that way too, but it, um, Matt uh, Odemark heard it in a, it sort of took it to a halftime place. And I don't know, it just made it sweeter mm-hmm. and, um, it, it just, yeah, it feels like a happy memory. You know what I mean? Like that's what the mm-hmm. sound feel, feels like mm-hmm. to me when I hear that song now. Um, Sri Lanka came out differently. Um, Cause my instinct is to sort of like rattle along, you know, on my, on my acoustic. And um, that's what I thought we were going to do. And, and Matt was like, no, you know, this song is about Sri Lanka is about um, uh, the Easter bombing of yeah 2019 in Sri Lanka. And he's like, the song's about a tragedy. Why don't we lean all the way into that? And so we stripped it all the way down to just a pad, essentially, like a synth pad, and um, had me sing on top of that. And, you know, he really encouraged me to just sort of stop trying to be, like, don't, don't be beautiful about it. Don't, you know, like, be as, mm-hmm. you know, be raw about it, be emotional about it. And um, then later when we brought in Charlie Lowell to do the keys, it was just like, I don't know. It just, it was, it's so stark and it's so sad. Um, and I think it really tells the story in a more mm-hmm. complete way than, than it, than it had before, mm-hmm. which I, I really love. Um, I don't really want to listen to it all that much. <laughs> the first time yeah. I heard it, I was like, wow, I'm devastated. But, uh, but it is, it is very beautiful, I think. And what else came? Oh, you know what? Witches came out differently than I thought it would. Mm. Okay. Um, not not super different, but um, the way that the band sort of went at it made the song feel much more, um, for lack of a better word, like sexy uh, than than I tend to play things. And you know, I was worried that I was like not going to be able to meet the song, sort of where it ended up, just because that's not like my normal. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's not my mo normally. Um, but I I I love that, and and it sort of became maybe what I like dreamed the song could be, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that we could get it there. And that's, that's how it ended up. And all credit to Matthew Odemark because we really took the time, he took the time listening to me, to the songs, to sort of really sort of figure out what the heart of each of them was and mm-hmm. help me um, sort of gather a vocabulary almost because I'm kind of novice in the studio. So to gather mm-hmm. this vocabulary of instrumentation and and what it means for different things to sound, you know, in different ways. Um, he, 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 I don't know, he was really able to see the heart of things and then um, mm-hmm. sort of guide me to, to like the point, which I, mm-hmm. which I really appreciate. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's interesting to, I, I'm always curious to know about, 
you know, what goes on, you know, in the studio, because mm-hmm. I know from my own experience of, of uh, doing recordings, you know, there's sometimes mm-hmm. that things get changed or you say, let's try it this way. Mm-hmm. But I have to tell you, I have a very, very good friend of mine. His name is Terry Landry. And Terry is yeah. a studio musician in Los Angeles and has been yeah. for, uh, I guess, the last two or three decades. Okay. And oh yeah, I mean he records at Capitol Records, and you know been a, he's been <laughs> in the same studio where Frank Sinatra recorded yeah. and so forth, all that kind of cool stuff. Oh my god, yeah. Now, <clears throat> Terry was a guest on my show a couple of months ago, and mm-hmm. you know, and in the interview, I was asking him, you know, if he had any advice or tips for any any you know aspiring young studio musicians out there because my audience isn't real young, but I have, I have, uh, uh, about, I guess almost a third of my audience between the ages of 20 and 30. Um, but anyway, he said that the, the, the job when you're hired to play a session, a record session is Mm -hmm. to go in and make the primary artist sound better than they even think they do. In other words, <laughs> by going in and playing exactly what's on the page, the very best you can, and maybe even, you know, doing some things differently. And he told me about mm-hmm. an, a, an example. He was working with a Nigerian reggae singer. Wow. Mm-hmm. And apparently the, the music in Ni- the reggae type music in Nigeria, the beat is slightly different than that, than say oh. Jamaican reggae (laughs) now i didn't know this right and he was telling me that in the session they were really having a hard time Mm -hmm. and uh and so anyway he and the other horn players they kind of during a break or something said let's let's try this and see if they like anyway bottom line the lead artist and his and the producer said you're the third set of horn players we've brought in and you're the only ones that got the feel right wow according to the name of the primary (laughs) artist and i don't remember that yeah. So <clears throat> knowing the importance of good side musicians in a studio, um, mm-hmm. that's going to lead me into these next two questions, which I yeah. think we can combine because okay. you've already talked some about the work of some of the others. And that's what I was yeah. going to ask you is about the work of some of the others who, who played with you on the album. Mm-hmm. But the other was the production of this album, was this strictly mm-hmm. a top-down operation from you, well, or with you directing everyone with what yeah. you wanted to sound like, or was there more of a level of collaboration between you, your producer, and the other musicians? And kind of mm-hmm. what was that level of collaboration and what were the contributions yeah. of the other musicians? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and that's something I'd say as like a studio novice, that's something that I really wished I had a, a, had knowledge about before, because mm-hmm. with my first project, I had this idea that I had to have everything totally done before I stepped foot in a studio. So I had to mm-hmm. have parts written for whatever instruments I wanted. And as a consequence of that, I was, I really limited the instrumentation for my first project because I was like, I can't. I can't do any more parts. <laughs> I would, you know, it took us months and months to articulate cello parts and, and piano parts, neither instrument I play. And so I mm-hmm. had to sit with somebody who did, who could sort of piece those things together and take what I was thinking and make it real. Um, and as I was, as I worked on this, so, so what happened was I, I had sort of connected with Matthew um, Odemark 
at Gray Matters and he connected me with uh, two other songwriters. One of them is Lewis Johnson, who I mentioned before played guitar. And the other is Dan Hasseltine, who is uh, the lead singer of Dress Play and himself. So we would sit, as soon as we connected basically the pandemic hit. So we would do these Zooms together, songwriting Zooms, which, you know, I'd never done. I'd never written with anybody, but we took sort of that base, that base layer, you know, of my song frame structure. And uh, on a few of them, I'd sit down and, and uh, with one of these guys on Zoom and we'd sort of talk through what could change and, and what, would make, what would make it better. And that I cannot say enough about that process and how important mm -hmm. it was to me just to have an objective person look through my very emotional work and, and say, this could be better. Um, and this is how it could be better was, uh, I think just would change the way I will write songs forever. I'm pretty sure. Mm -hmm. So there was collaboration on that level, hundred um, percent on a lot of the songs, probably like six, maybe six or seven of the songs, um, something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> But they're also in the studio. Um, I don't have, well, well, one of the things that Lewis, that Lou told me in, in one of our meetings, I was like, I'm really, I'm a little embarrassed because I'm not like a virtuoso guitar player. You know, like I'm mm -hmm. not, uh, yeah, that's not my primary instrument. And he was like, oh, don't be. Um, sometimes people come, you know, come into the studio with like a chord and, <laughs> and like a vague idea and then they work a song around it and that's how it works for them. Like it really just depends. On mm -hmm. what kind of session, yeah, you're having at that at that time, or what people are expecting. And so, when I actually got to the studio, I had these incredible musicians. I had Paul Eckberg was a drummer, and like sometimes he'd go down there, and I would be like, "What is he like? What is that sound? Like, I don't even how could he possibly be making that song mm -hmm. <laughs> in real life?" He's an incredible drummer, a studio musician in Nashville. Um, Kevin Wissett is a is a bass player. He was a touring musician before COVID, and I'm sure he's back on the road now. Um, and then Lou Johnson, who is a musician and a producer as well. So they all would listen to the songs and sort of ask me what the spirit was of the song. And I would tell them like, well, this is why this matters to me. This part feels really important. And they sort of pool ideas and then they'd dive into, uh, pick up their instruments, sort of sort things out. And, you know, we'd try it. They would just try it and, uh, you know, pop the mic on and what did you think of that? Well, I thought this, maybe this could change. And whatever but for the most part it was allowing them to sort of be as you say just like the stellar musicians that they that they are mm -hmm. um and listen to their wisdom and and when you know obviously when something was counter to what felt like the spirit of what i was going for feeling the confidence and also the trust to be able to say it without you know with despite the fact that i am far less experienced than them and and they really also uh, laid that groundwork as well so it, it felt very collaborative in the studio um and I felt very fortunate to sort of be able to bear witness to them um you know putting muscle and and skin on those on those song bones so mm -hmm, it, was, it, was, mm -hmm. it was really a gift really a gift mm -hmm. well yeah I mean you know anytime you work with really you know professional creative people mm -hmm. it seems like you know they know exactly what needs to to happen and that's because yeah. of their experience and their and their right. own talents i know uh, right. when i've recorded i've i've leaned a lot on the the you know the recording guy because mm -hmm. uh, that i worked with because he had mm -hmm. all kinds of ways of doing things that he said you know we can make this better if we do this if we do that. I said, okay well, we'll go with it you yeah know? so yeah, yeah i know what i know what you're saying 
Yeah, I know what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe more of a philosophical question. You know, the ancient Greeks claimed that the purpose of tragedy in drama was to serve as an emotional catharsis for those witnessing the drama. Yeah. One could experience the emotional pain of what they were witnessing on the stage without having mm -hmm. to bear the actual pain of what was being viewed on stage. Mm. So, mm -hmm. <coughs> excuse me for coughing again. <laughs> Is the aesthetic purpose of your songs to provide an emotional cleansing for your listeners? Or are you, as other songwriters have done, simply serving as an observer of human relationships and making personal commentary? Hmm. Hmm. <coughs> I think that, I think it's important for me as an artist to remember that like, it's not my job to cleanse anybody. It's not my job to, yeah, mm -hmm. to fix anything or anybody or even to explain it. Um, I think my job is to make a mirror um, for myself. And if somebody happens to see themselves in it, um, that's, that's all the better, right? It's, it sets sort of the groundwork for, yeah, it's, it's sort of is like uh, what my big hope is that the people who need to see their reflection in it, see it. And that's like my, that's the whole, the whole hope for me, really. Uh, that's the most unique way I think I've heard, heard, uh, that oh. described that's that's really <laughs> cool to create a mirror because in a sense you are writing about your own thoughts and feelings right sure yeah right and then <clears throat> if someone sees themselves in that mirror as well mm -hmm. then that's mm -hmm. a great way for them to relate to what you have expressed and they might mm -hmm. find that soothing and cathartic yeah. But that's not your really your main purpose is your, right. your your main purpose is to express human emotion vis-a-vis uh, -vis your own personal lens mm -hmm. or mirror. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. I think <laughs> I don't have an, any others, you know. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an excellent way to put it. I, I like mm -hmm. say that's the first time I've heard a, a singer songwriter <laughs> express it that way. And I like that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, speaking of uh, songwriters, uh, who are some songwriters that you have admired and, and perhaps you might even emulate? Mm -hmm. At the moment, I mean, I am like a, a, a Brandy Carlisle acolyte, <laughs> but so many of us are. Um, she just, she's like the godmother, you know, of this Americana genre at the moment, you know, like she's really... Um, she was, I don't see a lot of shows. I'm, I'm a primary parent to my kids. My husband works in the, the evenings. So I um, seldom get out <laughs> and mm -hmm. then COVID, whatever. But one of the last shows I did see was I saw her when she was touring, by the way, I forgive you. And it was just the most, oh God, it was so good. It was just such a, a beautiful performance, her joy and the way that she I sort of offers it, you know, to the whole audience. And um, I just, I love her. And I also love the way, I love the way she writes in stories, but I also love the way she writes, uh, she turns her insides out um, and writes writes from that as well. And it, it was the reminder, first listening to her was a reminder that like those kinds of things really are important to talk about. Um, and they really can, provide a lot of value uh to a listener and a lot of meaning mm -hmm. um so she's definitely been super influential mm -hmm. um 
the guys at Penny and Sparrow, I know I talked about Andy Baxter before, but, but Andy and Kyle from Penny and Sparrow, um, they are, their songwriting, they just sort of feel like they do whatever they want a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, and, I, and I like that about them too, because it's, it, it can be so simple. Their last single was just a, a bass and an acoustic guitar mm-hmm. and them singing. And his voice is so beautiful that it it is a reminder that like that is an instrument and it's an instrument that mm-hmm. needs to be practiced and and um, you know fine tuned and all of those things and can be used in such a beautiful powerful way, you know. And they they really do that. Mm-hmm. I love them for it. Uh, Joy Oladukun is another Nashville songwriter. I really love. Um, she actually saw them together, Penny Sparrow and her. Uh, a while ago and she's just um god what is she's just <laughs> what i love about both of those both of those groups actually is that in in person in personhood they are funny and they are engaging and they are um i don't know they recognize that both that they are that they are sad like their songs are sad <laughs> i don't know how to say it other mm-hmm. than that they recognize that, but their person is not. So they could be silly. They can be funny. Mm-hmm. They don't always have to like wear this tragic mask, but their mm-hmm. songs may reflect like that side of things. And it really, to me, painted sort of a, a more complete picture of like how to be an artist. Cause you don't have to just be like, you know, <laughs> super tragic mm-hmm. all the time and mourning and whatever. You can be fun and funny and still be serious and still make beautiful, meaningful things at the same time. Mm-hmm. 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 Um, yeah, so I think all, all of those, Glenn Hansard has been someone I've listened to for years and years and was maybe one of the first people I saw the movie once and I, I walked out and I was like, I'm going to make music forever. <laughs> mm-hmm. However that means, whatever that means, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. in whatever iteration, I want to do that forever. And he was sort of the first listening to those songs mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. from that album. Yeah. And subsequently all his other stuff. So. Well, you know, you raise a really interesting point, and this is something Mm -hmm. that I often teach my students, and that is Mm -hmm. as a performer, effectively, I think what we are, we're an actor or an actress portraying Mm -hmm. a particular role. Um, And just because you're up there, you know, singing, uh, there's a tear in my beer because you left me, you know, kind of thing, (laughs) doesn't necessarily mean that you can't follow Mm -hmm. up with something that's that, you know, in other words, you don't have to be what you're yeah. creating in your art. Right. Your right. art is going to come out because of who you are, mm. but mm-hmm. you don't have to be what it is that you're creating. Mm-hmm. If that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Yeah. But, yeah. But I think that, you know, sometimes um, audiences mm-hmm. and, uh, sometimes confuse that they think that that Mm -hmm. uh, oh you know they sing these tragic songs oh what a poor awful person they must be you know right or life or sometimes people get hung up with uh, care with actors or actresses they see in movies Mm -hmm. and they think Mm -hmm. that that's the way they are in real life right right i got i got i forget who i was interviewing the other day and we got talking about this very same thing Mm. and about how Bruce Dern, the actor Bruce Dern, got hate mm-hmm. mail because in the movie The Cowboys, he kills John Wayne. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, it's just in the movie. He didn't really kill yeah. John Wayne, right? But, but he right. did, you know, 
and uh and uh you know sometimes people don't separate the reality from yeah. the, from the fantasy or the fiction right right there's uh, a um that's a uh that's a it's a literary um device I, I i study literature but it was a long time ago yeah um i think it's called the 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 authorial fallacy something like that the, the fallacy of intent but basically it's like reading it the author must this is this is them i guess you know yeah if it's yeah. a first person narrator well that's how they feel about everything so yeah, <laughs> they but, might you know, it might just be a particular idea they had and wanted yeah. to to express you know it was right. a dark and stormy night well it might have been right. a beautiful afternoon actually but I happen to think that I wanted to start my story with it was a dark and stormy night. So anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, we can go on. There, there, we're, we're, on, we're, yeah. on the, we're on the same page about this. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. What I am really interested, Katie, is knowing mm -hmm. more about your personal creative process. Okay. What inspires you when you write? When you, mm -hmm. when you write, do you start with a lyric or do you start with a melodic idea, a rhythmic mm -hmm. idea, a particular set of chord changes? Or do you attempt to reflect a particular mood or other cognitive imagery? Yeah, yeah, that is that is the question. <laughs> <laughs> I find that I, um, I so like I said, I'm a full time um, mom for the most part, and right. I have really, especially in these last, you know, whatever it's been year, ten years since COVID started. Um, <laughs> Uh, for, for those really have been um, realizing and seeing and putting value in the fact that so many creative parents or caretakers in general um, find uh, movement, find growth, find the ability to make stuff in just these margins of their, their lives, um, how much creativity sort of is packed into those, those edges. Um, and so for me, as I, especially writing this, this, this last album, and as I work towards, you know, a new project, um, what I've done and what I did, uh, at least with the, with the last project is I would, I would record sort of like whatever my idea was a little voice memo, like 15 seconds, a minute, whatever it happens to be. Mm -hmm. And then, and then forget about it. <laughs> and then mm -hmm. be like, all right, all right, it's out, it's out, it's out of there. I can forget mm -hmm. it. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it'll be remembered in my device. So, um, I had a, like a collection of, you know, dozens of, I don't know, hundreds of those little thoughts. And for me, the thoughts tend to come a little melodies usually, sometimes like a melody and a lyric together, um, almost never a whole thought. Sometimes like the theme of a song will come up in like a little four word phrase or something, but I'll very seldom sit down and try to do the whole thing right then. It's really hard for me to do that in part because time is hard, you know, um, Time is hard when two people want your attention all the time. Sure. Um, uh, so I gathered all those little snippets, like at the beginning of actually the beginning of 2020, I just sat down and I just listened through all of them. God knows how long that took. And I, I marked the ones that seemed worthwhile and I, and I revisited them, the ones that seemed to go together. And, you know, as you were, as you know, over the course of time coming up with a, a catalog of those little pieces, you, you know, you've lived life, I've lived life and, and some sort of theme or uh, I don't know, like some kind of, you know, something that I've been working on or working towards or something that's happened or whatever has happened in that space of time. And so, you know, a theme for the work kind of, kind of comes together and mm -hmm. all the songs, I like to, I like to think of 
like a complete project sort of as like there's one thing in the middle you know the gemstone kind of idea where you're in the room and every song is looking at the gemstone kind of in a different way um from a different angle and that's how those things all kind of go together so yeah so I guess that's how I, I build out a project and I think that's why I have a hard time like doing just like little one song like one-offs you know because mm -hmm. to me it's like everything is always part of something else <laughs> it's got to mm -hmm. work together in a group or whatever so yeah, I guess that's kind of, does that, does that answer your question? Well, it does. It Ray actually raises a rather interesting question mm -hmm. that I would mm -hmm. like to ask you. And that is sure. when you talk about all the songs kind of, uh, kind of revolving around this idea mm -hmm. on the, the new album, are all those songs somewhat interrelated and looking at some mm -hmm. central kind of idea, like, a, you know, in the classical world, we would call it a song cycle. Mm -hmm. Just like, just like uh, 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 Franz Schubert's uh, uh, Winter mm -hmm. East, all the songs mm -hmm. are about winter, right? Right. Because they, yeah. they have this common theme. Is that what you're suggesting that you did with your work? Yeah, that is what I wow. did um, with wow. The Water Comes Back. Yeah. I'll mm -hmm. be back. I'm going to be listening with a whole nother set of ears <laughs> now. I'm taking that into consideration because, yeah. you know, the, the whole idea of, of, taking individual songs and putting around a common theme of course that goes back really to the beatles and the sergeant pepper album which was the first mm -hmm. concept album where mm -hmm. all the songs were somehow related to a theme instead of just a, a, a kind of a loose collection of singles which right. really rock and pop albums were up until that right. point mm -hmm. um and uh and so certainly we've seen uh, other examples uh, subsequent to that dark side of the moon by Pink Floyd and the wall yeah. and, mm -hmm. you know, those kinds of things. But I, I did not listen to your album with that kind of, with that set of ears on. And I'm going to go back now mm -hmm. and listen again, because uh, that's really interesting to know that you yeah. conceived it that way. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, I'm actually blown away. I'm just, I'm, <laughs> That's really great. <laughs> oh, I, I'm so interested to hear what you think about it now well, with those uh, new ears. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll uh, I'll try and relay through through Krista what uh, what yeah. I'm what I'm hearing. St uh, you know, uh, maybe we'll have to have a subsequent interview sometime. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I love the, it. <laughs> yeah. When the, well, when the next one comes out, oh, how's that? Mm -hmm. Okay, there you love go. <laughs> well, let's kind of revert back to the past again. What have been some of your most memorable musical experiences? Memorable music experiences. Um, I mean, recording this project is going to be uh, pretty top of my list for a while, simply because it is everything about it feels a little out of character, you know, uncharacteristically bold of me to have like asked to record in this studio and um, to meet with these people and, you know, my childhood heroes. And um, I've had to learn so much over the last year in um, in getting it out, in figuring out like what it is to how you know how the industry is sort of working right now, how I could fit in it, and still main you know still still be who I am and in my life. But like, is there a place for me here? And sort of trying to to figure out what that lane is and and how I fit into it. Um, yeah, so yeah, be, being in the studio, being in Jars of Play studio, um, which is where I was, uh, 
you know, having the band members like walk down the hall and be like, thumbs up, you know, as they mm-hmm. walk by. And, mm-hmm. and um, you know, I, having visited the studio in the, several years before on like a tour and it just, it was, it was a very surreal gift of my life. And I'm not mm-hmm. going to, not going to forget about that. Um, well, we wouldn't want to attach a, a cliche to it. Like it was a dream come true. <laughs> I mean, it kind of was, but let's kinda not, was. yeah, okay. <laughs> let's not be cliche, but <laughs> it definitely, it was not a dream that I ever imagined would come true. And okay. yet, and yet there it was um, here. I would like look up and be like, here I am. Look at this. <laughs> here I am in this room. Wow. Mm-hmm. How did this happen? Um, I still think that periodically, actually. <laughs> um, I can think also of a few, you know, I, I, as my, my faith has transitioned, um, uh, away from traditional uh, American evangelicalism, I I still can't deny that those are my roots. Like that's where I came from. Mm-hmm. And so when I think, and that's where I learned how to play music. You know, that's where I learned how to play with people, how to harmonize, how to do all those things came with, you know, came from that world. And I can think of a few Christmases that I, I played. I played a lot of Christmases, <laughs> but Treated. like you're playing all day, you're playing all day with these, you know, with your band and just sort of like the surreal, almost like punch drunk feeling at the end of one of those uh, weekends, you know, seven or eight services. And sometimes it's like after midnight because it's a candle lit one. And <laughs> you're just the, the, those experiences and the, the kind of the closeness that comes from being in that kind of environment and trusting people that way musically. Um, you know, I, I don't get to play out a lot. I'm hoping that changes in the next, um, you know, the next few years. But for right now, those are the experiences, you know, for the thousands of people that filtered through those churches on those weekends, being able to be on that stage with those group, groups of people, trusting sure. them, um, forming relationships, learning about, you know, like myself, but also what it is to work with people. It's just it, those, those kinds of experiences really are things I go back to with, with great fondness. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you. Good for you. Mm-hmm. Well, um, so aside from recording the new album, which of course mm-hmm. has been very consuming, how have you been keeping <laughs> mentally and musically active uh, yeah. since most live music has been shut down because of COVID? Yeah, yeah, that's been a, I mean, it's been a little bit of a challenge. And uh, again, I, I left playing music at the church, which meant I lost my predominant um, source of, of playing um, with mm-hmm. and out in front of people. Uh, so it's been a little while since, for me anyway. So what I decided to do actually in the beginning, or I guess it was the fall of um, that, I guess the October of 2020, I took, this is my my third floor space. I call it the third floor. I re sort of vamped it and shaped, shaped it so that I had a space to come up. It was always ready for me. I could sit down, my guitar is here, my mic is set up, my computer can be set up and I can record or I can just play around or I can share something or I can make a video. And so sort of engaging with social media in ways I hadn't previously um, using it for fun, you know, using it for promotion and all that stuff, but also figuring out ways of making my space into a space where music exists all the time. Music and art Mm -hmm. can always exist. Um, That's something that's kept me busy, Uh, but also um, learning you know, this past year, since January, when I recorded, uh, I've had to do, you know, I've made every graphic, every video, um, I've done every press release, I've wrote, you know, written every bio, I've done uh, all these things that I didn't know how to do before. Um, mm-hmm. Done a lot of Googling. <laughs> uh, 
a lot of Googling, watched a lot of YouTube videos, uh, but, but I've learned how to do a great number of things that I never thought myself capable of doing before. And in fact, before I would refuse to do like building out my website and stuff like that. And um, so using the music sort of as the, the pin holding everything together, because a lot of those things are not things I love doing, but because they all relate back to this project and because they all, they all are, are trying to tell the same story, um, it made it feel really motivational to keep going and to you know keep making these videos and to keep putting out um, what I could for every single or whatever. So uh, yeah, I've been I've been busy. I've kept busy. <laughs> good. good. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's good. That's great. Yeah. Because that's uh, otherwise, I think maybe you go a little cuckoo. I think so. I think. Yeah. Yep, for sure. I mean, that's that's sort of why that's I started I doing this this podcast when I yeah. do have rehearsals or gigs. Uh, <laughs> and I thought I've got to find some way to still create content. Yeah. And uh, I'd kind of been flirting with the idea of doing a podcast for a while, but this mm -hmm. is what pushed me over the edge. And uh, my 52nd episode goes public tomorrow. So That's I've been remarkable. at it. I've been at it for a year. Thank you. That's Thank remarkable. you very much. I'm, yeah, I can't almost, I almost <laughs> can't believe it myself. Yeah. <laughs> well, now that the water comes back is quote unquote in the can and released. Are <laughs> yeah. you planning your next album? Are you writing songs for your next album? I'm starting. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely starting. Like I, like I said about those little uh, weird voice memos, I'm definitely acquiring them, trying to group them together. Um, mm -hmm. Having done this work on this album, it sort of is an interesting sort of like, what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? What's next? And how can I do it? Because the pace at which I've been working, is not particularly sustainable <laughs> with my current, with my current life. Um, so how am I going to, granted a lot less will be new, I guess, with this, with this, with the next project. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I'm, I'm sort of building around an idea now uh, that I think is, I think I know what the, what the central idea is going to be. Um, I think I even know what the title of it is going to be, so I'm not going to say it yet, but <laughs> that's okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think I have a, I have a good idea and I'm not sure exactly how everything will play out, but I have a good idea. And I think I have like a cornerstone song in mind, but nothing is actually, actually written yet. That's fine. <laughs> you know, you just want to tell us enough to kind of whet our appetite yeah. and make us look forward <laughs> to what's coming up. Yeah. Um, yeah, you pretty well addressed, uh, really, the next couple of questions that I had that I was going to ask you. So I'm just going to go right to Katie. Is there anything else you'd like to add or tell my audience that I haven't asked you about? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we kind of covered a lot of ground. Um, what do I want to say? I guess I want to say one of my biggest, one of the biggest things for me one of the highlights thus far of my very brief career is starting, is starting. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of people, I think a lot of mothers or primary caretakers don't start either because they think their ideas are maybe dumb or not important enough uh, or that everyone else's life matters more, you know, um, or there will be time later. And like, yeah, there will probably be time later. But with this project, what I, what I told myself over and over again is that it was worth it. 
And it is worth it to my children to see that my work is worth it. Mm-hmm. And it's worth it to, to show my spouse. And it's worth it to, you know, to show my friends that you can be working, you know, in those margins, um, you can be working there or you can carve out the time um, because what you have to say matters um, in the world and what you have to offer is significant. And I think, uh, I just really hope that by my doing this in a semi-public way, you know, sort of documenting start to finish the journey that this, that the water comes back has been and the whole process of recording it and sharing it. I, I hope that, you know, there's some mom or dad somewhere, you know, <laughs> who hasn't, whose who's big outing is Target every week or whatever. I hope that they realize that they, they have something to say and it's valuable and mm-hmm. that we want to hear it. And then they feel, mm-hmm. they feel brave enough to start. You know, that's, that's an awesome reason. Uh, because if it empowers others, then that's, that's reason enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Katie, I want to thank you for taking time to talk with me today and uh, want to wish you all the best with what I'm sure will be a continued successful musical future. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love talking with you. You bet. Will you take care and have a good rest of your day? Thanks. You the same. Mm -hmm. My Discovery Composer of the Week is Danish composer and organist Rud Langard, born in Copenhagen, July 28, 1893, died in Rib, July 10, 1952. His father, Siegfried Langard, was a piano teacher and composer, and his mother, Emma Foss, a pianist. He received early instruction from his parents and was taught the organ and music music theory by private teachers, including C.F.E. Hornermann. At the age of 11, he made a remarkable debut in Copenhagen as an organist and improviser. And in 1908, a performance of an early cantata for soloists, chorus, and orchestra attracted attention. Between 1908 and 1913, he traveled regularly to Berlin with his parents. Contacts there led to his hour-long Symphony No. 1, written in 1908 to 1911, being performed by the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra in 1913 in a concert devoted to his works. This was the greatest outward success of the composer's career. In Denmark, the musical community regarded the highly productive but reserved and solitary composer with considerable skepticism. In 1921-1923, Langard's symphonic works aroused some interest in Germany where two of his most progressive compositions, Music of the Spheres, written in 1916 to 1918, and his Symphony No. 6 of 1919-1920, were given their premieres. But a true breakthrough failed to materialize, and after his opera, Antichrist, was turned down by the Royal Theater in Copenhagen in 1925, 
He reacted sharply by turning his back on modernism and openly criticizing Danish musical life, not least Carl Nielsen's significant aesthetic influence on it. He never gained sufficient sympathy for his music to establish himself in Danish musical life, becoming instead an isolated figure who developed a rigid and unhappy relationship of opposition to the musical authorities and spirit of the time. His uncompromising view of music, colored by religion and symbolism, did not concur with the anti-romantic and sober attitude which became dominant in Denmark around 1930. He battled for many years to obtain a position as organist and only in 1940 became cathedral organist in Reap, far from the center of Danish musical life in Copenhagen. Collage-like features, expresses, expressive of desperation and fragmentation, and a preoccupation with visions of destruction make Langard's music distinctive, despite the often late romantic and at times demonstratively retrospective nature of his musical language. He often went to extremes to achieve expressiveness, and his works frequently transcend traditional perceptions of musical form and temporal progression. His many pastiche-like compositions, seen purely in isolation, are of a debatable artistic merit, but they have a place in his individual symbolist universe. His works overall can be seen as a commentary on time, on the classical romantic tradition, and on the isolation of the composer. Langard's vast output of more than 400 compositions falls into four phases. Up until 1916, his works were late romantic in idiom, influenced by composers such as Liszt and Richard Strauss. Between 1916 and 1924, late romanticism, refined in sound, was mixed with expressive modernism, inspired in places by Nielsen, but also anticipating Hindemith and Bartok. The principal works of this period are the symphonies number four and number six, music of the spheres, his opera Antichrist, music of the abyss for piano, and the string quartets number two and number three. In a long intermediate phase, Langard attempted to reestablish his romantic point of departure to retell, as it were, music as he remembered from his childhood about the turn of the century. He adopted a consciously anonymous style, which took the music of Wagner and Niels Gaither as its starting point. The principal work in this period was the two-hour-long harvest time for organ, which draws on the entire range of expression of the Romantic era. In the fourth and final phase, 
from about 1945 onwards, absurdity and fragmentation found their way into Langard's world. And the composer's desperation is expressed in works such as the nightmarish Six Minute Symphony Number no. 11, written in 1944 to 1945. In the distinctive piano piece, Les Bougenages, 1948 1949, stylistic elements of Schumann, Debussy, and salon music are combined with modernist effects in a collage-like mixture. Only about half of Langard's output was performed during his lifetime, and most works only on a single occasion. The opera Antichrist, eight of his 16 symphonies, and other major works were not performed until interest in his music was reawakened in about 1968. Music of the Spheres in particular contributed towards this renewal of interest since it anticipated the avant-garde music of the 1960s in both its compositional techniques and its concentration on the spatial and purely sonorous aspects of the music. In the 1990s, Langard's works and the symbolist music, musical world from which they emerged were again surveyed and discussed and numerous recordings have helped provide a varied picture of the paradoxical and complex composer, confirming his position among the outsiders of the 20th century. His music, which has generated considerable scholarly interest, often radiates elemental creative power, making an immediate impression. Langard's art, and his personal fate sets Danish musical history into relief, and in a wider perspective his works provide an inexhaustible source for the enrichment and renewal of the usual view of music, as the musical historian Gottfried Skierne, the only one to do so in Langard's own time, was able to foresee in 1916. The All Music Guide lists 23 recordings of Langaard's chamber music, 32 of his choral works, one of his concerto for violin and orchestra, 59 works for keyboard, one of his opera Antichrist, 17 recordings of his symphonies, 29 of his works for voice and accompaniment, seven recordings of other orchestral works, and three recordings of other miscellaneous works. In my show notes is a YouTube link to a performance of the finale to Langaard's opera, Antichrist, featuring the Danish National Symphony and Danish National Choir, conducted by Thomas Dalsgaard. That wraps episode number 62. My show notes, along with links to artist websites, recording label websites, YouTube videos of artist performances, are all posted on my Facebook page, The Musical Universe of Professor Hurst. Next week, I'll be wishing you a happy new year with an interview 
with Jaina Ayers of the Oklahoma-based twin sister duo Lavendine. Other upcoming interviews in 2022 will be Oakland, California-based singer-songwriter Claudia Combs-Carty, New Hampshire-based boogie-woogie piano-playing phenomenon and rockabilly artist Veronica Lewis, and Nashville-based husband and wife duo Elder. So don't touch that dial and stay tuned. If you have questions, comments, or a suggestion of an artist, composer, or musical style for me to consider, you may email me at h-u-r-s-t-c at u-w-m dot e-d-u. So until next time, this is Professor Craig W. Hurst and Carmel the Wonder Dog signing off from the musical universe of Professor Hurst. Have a great day.